0: So, good evening, everyone. Tonight, I'm going to speak about um, two qualities of heart and mind that come with practice, that get developed as we practice. This way of practicing is sometimes called... uh, a way of seeing and a way of being. I heard that description years ago, and it has stayed with me. Uh, It is a way of seeing through the eyes of wisdom and a way of being with ourselves and our lives, our world, with compassion. When we bring awareness down below the neck, we enter the world of the heart, of emotions, of embodied presence and relationship, and we discover we very much need this quality of kindness, care, compassion, love, as part of our practice. Without that, wisdom can be a bit dry, detached, uh, disembodied, And so it is said in the Buddhist tradition that these two qualities of wisdom and compassion are like the two wings of a bird. They are both necessary to navigate our lives, to find our way uh, through uh, the various 10,000 joys and sorrows which arise, which we meet as we sit and as we walk. So I'm gonna talk a little bit tonight about each of these qualities. Wisdom, we could say, as I said, is a way of seeing ourselves, seeing the world. It is a way of opening our perception to see in a deeper than ordinary way. At the same time, wisdom is a quality of, you could say, non-identification with our experience. It's a quality of not being fooled, not being deceived by the appearances in our lives. It helps us to see what is true. And just in the way that you've been doing here, um, coming back over and over again, wisdom is this quality of seeing, not just once, not just twice, (laughs) but seeing over and over and over again the same old experiences. And you, you, you might be thinking, well, you know, so the breath, I've seen it once, I've seen it a hundred times, why do I have to keep seeing more about it? But wisdom is this dawning understanding that there's more going on, and even as simple a thing as the breath, as we f- then, what we first can um, notice, and so when we are sitting and something arises like pain in the body, we think of pain as being a very solid and unmoving and sort of ongoing experience that doesn't seem like it ever changes. But then with mindful awareness, with encouragement to keep exploring it, to keep coming back to pain, not to pretend it's not there, not to try to distract ourselves from it, but to keep coming back and being present with it over and over again, it begins to reveal its actual nature. And this is the function of mindfulness, that things begin to reveal their nature we begin to see that pain, what we call pain, when we look very, very closely over a period of time, is actually a field of changing sensations. We may find in pain sensations of stabbing, searing, heat, pressure, hardness, dullness, uh, throbbing, pulsing. And we see that they are appearing, and dancing like a field of of sensations. And so we see that pain, what we call pain, is actually not so solid as we perhaps uh, imagined on first sight. Another another example might be that we um, notice on this retreat, that we keep having this image of ourselves as not doing it right, or somehow failing, or being unworthy. And whenever this comes up, it feels true. It feels like, yeah, that's me. That's who I am. I have always been this way. I probably always will be this way. This is another thing that I'm not doing right, that I'm not doing well. But when we really look we see that that belief, that appearance in the mind is not always there. There may be many hours of the day when it's not around. When it does appear, it feels very solid and true. But we begin to notice there many times when it's not around. And we have other experiences of ourselves. And so we begin to see that what we have taken to be some kind of ongoing description, forever true, about ourselves is only a momentary appearance, made of what? Perhaps some memory, some thoughts, a sensation in the body, an emotion of of, uh, despair. We can explore it and see what it's made of and we find that all these mind states that we were talking about this morning they're they're like little recipes you know they're like they're made of things they're not solid they're made of many different things if you if you have a mind state of anger for example you can look and see that anger is made of of a lot of different things it's made of a story a story about something that happened and he said and she said and i did and blah 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 and the more you repeat that story, the more anger begins to flourish in your mind and body. You can also see that anger is made of uh, strong sensations in the body. And that this is like the recipe for anger. I, right now, if I said to you, okay, let's all get really angry, you know, we could, we could probably whip up something pretty easily. <laughs> There's a recipe. So in practice we begin to see what things are made of and we see they're not so solid, not so enduring, not so uh, absolute as we have imagined them to be. And this is good news. This is good news. This is the beginning of the wisdom of seeing through the solidity and apparent reality of how we hold things in our very own minds and bodies. So wisdom grows out of this direct observation, this direct experience of being present with these very mundane, ordinary experiences. What could be more mundane and ordinary? (laughs) Breathing, sensing, hearing, smelling, uh, feelings, emotions. This is the same world that the Buddha explored. The Buddha did not have some other kinds of experiences than the ones we are having. But he learned to see through them in a way that was rather extraordinary. So wisdom has this quality of uh, illumination. It illuminates the true nature of things. The classic story which is used to illustrate wisdom is a story that goes like this. Some of you probably have heard it. You're walking along a path. It's sort of like the mountain lion story in a way. You're walking along a path at this time of day and ahead of you in the path you don't see a mountain lion. You see something coiled on the path. Oh! And maybe you're in a region where they say, watch out for the rattlesnakes, you know. So, ooh, you see something coiled, but it's a little dark and you can't see it really well, but you're like, oh, there it is. And maybe you have a companion with you and you're sort of frozen with fear and your companion is braver and takes a few tiptoes towards it and looks more carefully and sees that this thing that is coiled is actually a rope. It's a rope, It's not a snake. So how do you feel when that occurs? Ah, relief. It's not a snake at all. It's just a rope. Wisdom is like that. It's like seeing something that you felt was uh, cause for great fear and seeing that it's not. It's not. It's not as real and solid and frightening as you had first imagined. That's a kind of wisdom that begins to wake up. And it's like once you have seen that it's a rope, (laughs) nobody can come along and say to you, no, you're wrong, it's a snake. You better get uh, prepared because it's about to bite you. No, you know in your own experience this is a rope. Nobody can talk you out of it. And that's a good thing about wisdom. Once we have seen in this way, this understanding is ours. Nobody can take it away from you. It's not open to debate. You know for sure this is not a snake, it's a rope. It never was a snake. (laughs) It's just a rope. So here you are sitting and walking and um, I remember the beginning of my practice, um, it was not at all obvious to me what I'm saying to you now. It wasn't at all obvious to me that this uh, activity of observing my experience over and over again was in itself a liberating force in the mind, even though my teachers said over and over that seeing was enough. Well, it didn't appear that way to me at all. I didn't believe that observing my experience would be freeing, that it had the power to free me. I thought something else was going to do it. And so I kept looking outside of myself, perhaps because I started practice in the Zen tradition, where there's a little bit more ritual, there's a little bit more magic and mystery, there's chanting, there's rituals, there's, there's a bowing, there's other things that seem much more interesting than just sitting and watching my experience. And it also seemed a little bit more fraught with, you know, something, I don't know, something more exciting. And so I thought, okay, any day somebody will in a robe will come by my seat and say, come, come, I'm going to give you the secret teachings now. <laughs> I thought there were, there must be secret teachings because I wasn't getting anything out of what I was doing. So I, for a long time, I kept looking outside of myself, expecting something else to happen than just this moment-to-moment... Uh, process of looking over and over at my same old boring experience. It took me some years to realize that the teachings that we are to receive when we practice this way are in some way secret. We keep them secret from ourselves, so we could say they're self-secret. Nobody else is keeping them secret from you. We are not keeping anything secret from you. We are saying, please, (laughs) look, 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 over and over again. That's what we are saying. The teachings are always being given to you, unrelentingly so. But we don't know how to see them. We don't know what to make of them. We keep them secret from ourselves through a kind of... Distractedness, dullness, uh, blindness, lack of interest. We may not be interested in seeing anything here. That's fine, it's your choice. Years ago, I heard Krishnamurti talk and he was quite a engaging teacher for those of you who may have seen him either in person or by video he was a very electrifying presence and he kept saying it is the truth which liberates the truth which liberates and i would think wow this is really amazing you know i can't wait to meet this truth you know <laughs> whatever it is i want it <laughs> and um yet You know, I didn't recognize the truth that was being presented. So, I think I'll read you a story from this wonderful little book of Gil Fronsdale put together together called A Monastery Within, Tales from the Buddhist Path. And so these are little teaching stories about an imaginary monastery where people come to uh, practice and awaken. So this little story is called Finding the Right Teacher. Many people arrived at the monastery hoping to be admitted to the order. Some were sent away since what they were searching for was not to be found in the monastery. Once there was a 30 year old man who arrived at the monastery feeling exhausted, discouraged, and hopeless. He had decided he was no longer capable of living the worldly life. Perhaps he hoped the monastery would provide him with a path that would bring him freedom. It had been the birth of his second child that had pushed him over the edge he could no longer manage to live with the frustration and the demands on his time that family life had become. He was also worn down by his older child's constant pushing the limits of acceptable behavior. When he came to the monastery, he asked that he be put under the care of the abbess or another great teacher who could help him find peace. He felt encouraged when he was told that this could be arranged. However, first he would have to prepare himself and prove himself to be worthy by sitting alone in meditation for seven days in the small waiting room next to the main entrance of the monastery. The man cried the first two days. During the third day, he was washed with alternating waves of nausea and fear, The fourth was spent reviewing his life. For the fifth and sixth days, he seemed to question every belief he had. By the seventh day, he was beginning to feel calmer and certainly more rested than when he had arrived days earlier. At the end of the seventh day, he eagerly awaited to be admitted into the monastery and to find out who would be his teacher. When the seven days were over, the abbess herself came for the man. She congratulated him on completing the solitary retreat. Come, said the abbess, and I will introduce you to your new teachers. It took a while, but we have found the ideal people who can help you find both your spiritual strength and freedom. The abbess then led the man out the front gate of the monastery, where waiting for him were his wife and two children. (laughs) Happy to see them, the man raced out to embrace them. Then the abbess declared, Your wife and two children are your ideal teachers. In your case, nowhere else but in your own family will you find the freedom you are looking for. With that, the abbess closed the monastery gate. This is very much the attitude of mindfulness. It's very much the attitude of wisdom. Can we see what is in our experience, whether it's in our inner world or in our outer world, as our teacher, or our teachers that attitude of seeing whatever presents itself as a teacher come to show us things mindfulness this is how mindfulness works by taking what is present as our teacher it shows it shows us not only what is here but in a way that we begin to see more than we had noticed we, we begin to see what we have overlooked. The Zen poet Basho instructed his students, he said, learn about the pine from the pine, learn about the bamboo from the bamboo. This is a good instruction for painters or poets, and it is also a good instruction for us in our mindfulness practice. Learn about the breath from the breath, from the immediacy of being present with our direct experience. Learn about sensations from sensations. Learn about pain from pain. Learn about anger from anger. Learn about calm from calm. Learn about joy from joy. Learn about change from the fact of it, from noticing it, from seeing it unfolding in your own mind and body, moment to moment. This is how we learn, this is how wisdom grows in us, by this observation, moment to moment, of just what is here, what is true. As we learn to see in this way, we are relying more on our awareness than we are on our concepts about things. We are relying and trusting in awareness itself to show us what is true, more than on our opinions, our beliefs, our theories about life. This is what we are learning here. Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, founder of Naropa... Uh, university gave uh, years ago when he was teaching. He used to give the analogy of practice being like, um, well, like like going out to dinner, say, and you go downtown where there's a lot of restaurants, and you go from one restaurant to the re- to the next, reading the menu, you know, on each on each door. But if you really want to know the food, you have to go in and eat the meal. That's where the true nourishment lies. It doesn't lie in just reading the menu. In the same way, reading about mindfulness, of which you can spend lifetimes now, reading about this practice, is not going to give you near the nourishment or the understanding that, you know, a couple of hours of sitting and walking. Will it's just so true. I see people now coming on retreat who've done a lot of reading and they're still shocked to discover, you know, what it's like in their own minds, in their own bodies, in their own hearts. This is this is so much more uh nourishing and so much more uh revealing than any any book about it could ever be. One of our teachers, well, he's now moved to England, Achan Amaro, a wonderful monk, he says it this way. He says that approaching life through thinking about it or only reading about it is like trying to drink water from the word cup. (laughs) It just doesn't quench the thirst. The words and the concepts are pointers but not reality. So an example from my practice um, years ago, I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, and I think as a child I heard the word compassion, and I I, I had this idea that was a good thing to do and be, you know, you're supposed to be compassionate, and I never really saw anybody around me being that way, but... <laughs> <laughs> I got the idea it was some kind of good thing. And then years later, when I was just getting interested in Buddhism, I went to hear a, a, a Tibetan Lama teach. And um, I didn't understand much of what he said because his English wasn't all that, that good at that time. But he somebody asked him a question at one point in the afternoon about compassion. And he turned and looked at that person and began to answer in his broken English. And the room, for me, the whole room just filled with compassion. It was just suddenly compassion was a living force field. And something came into me that, you know, I could say that was a moment that changed my life because after that I got very interested in in what he was teaching and what this was all about. Because it was it was a living presence, it wasn't just a word. another time in the middle of a long retreat, I think it was my first retreat, a long retreat at insight meditation. I was um, when I started my practice, I had all kinds of emotional fireworks going on and ups and downs, and never a boring moment. It was just exciting as could be. And then over some weeks, everything settled down and I was sitting and walking, feeling nothing very much was going on. And so I thought, well, it's not working anymore. <laughs> so I went to my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, and I described what was happening to me. And I remember his his amused smile when he, when he looked at me and he said, Anna... I think you're beginning to experience calm. <laughs> and I was amazed because it wasn't even an aspiration of mine to be calm. <laughs> but there it was, me, calm, what a concept. So I was appreciating last night Will's story about Upandita saying that uh, why, why, do, why does enlightenment happen in stages? And um, what I remember him saying may not be getting it completely right was because of the intensity of the pain and the joy and the emotions that we need to fully open to, to be fully awake. So there is something in us that is both attracted and also a little bit, uh, wow, I don't know if I can do that. So wisdom comes from this quality of direct experience of paying attention in a way that we're willing to experience and feel and open and let ourselves be informed by all these different experiences. When we do this, when we pay attention, reality gets through to us. Reality reveals its secrets, we could, so to speak, we could say. And we are often quite amazed by what we find. It seems that artists know about this because that's what they spend their lives doing, paying attention and noticing what comes. Henry Miller wrote this, the moment one gives close attention to anything... Even a blade of grass, it becomes a mysterious, awesome, indescribably magnificent world in itself. Mary Oliver, the great... uh, She's a living testament to this... uh, love of paying attention to the natural world. She says, there is nothing in this world, if I can pay attention to it long enough, that doesn't cease to foster wonder and love. If there is something, I haven't found it yet. She also talks about uh, my work is loving the world. Here are the sunflowers, there are the hummingbird. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. Learning to be astonished. In some ways, this is what happens in practice as well. Joanna Macy says, The Dharma Path strikes me as profoundly erotic. To pay attention to anything, you find love arising for whatever it is. When you put your attention on it, it reveals itself to you. I had a major insight on a retreat once with this little ant crawling up my leg. And I would flick it off. A few minutes later, <laughs> this went on. And this ant became like a teacher. The ant was the teacher of the moment, teaching me something about, it wanted something. It was determined to go this direction. And I was just like that ant. There was no difference. It was sort of a, a, one of those illuminations that you can't exactly describe but it had an impact, so much so that I'm sitting here many years later speaking about it. (laughs) Billy Collins, he has a poem called Aimless Love. This morning (laughs) as I walked along the lakeshore, I fell in love with a wren, and later in the day with a mouse the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an autumn evening, I fell for a seamstress still at her machine in the tailor's window, later for a bowl of broth. This is the best kind of love, I thought, without recompense, without gifts or unkind words, without suspicion or silence on the telephone, just love for the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water and for the dead mouse still dressed in its light brown suit. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink gazing down affectionately at the soap. So patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish, I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. I know the practice is working here at Spirit Rock when I see somebody out on the patio, down on all fours, eye to eye with a lizard or a bug or something, you know. This kind of attention that we begin to naturally have begins to open us to the world around us and begins to reveal to us how connected we are, doesn't it? You begin to feel, oh, this life that I'm so much a part of, not separate at all. So there's something in this attention that is, we could say, is it any different from this quality of love or when we are fully feeling a moment of love noticing how completely attentive we are. This quality of attention, this quality of love, they seem to go together. There was in the many years ago a We were talking about this last night in the teacher room. There was some human being called the Sixth Zen Patriarch. And then we had a long discussion about what are patriarchs. We don't really know what they are, but they seem to be people that have wise things to say. So I'm going to read you the Platform Sutra of the Sixth Zen Patriarch. Good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and kindness as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and kindness are different. They are a unity, not two things. Awareness is the substance of kindness. Kindness is the function of awareness. At the very moment there is awareness, then kindness exists. Good friends, this means that meditation and kindness are the same. So this quality of attention that we're developing is attention that is not colored by our judgments, by our uh, distinctions, by our... uh, need to shut anything out. It is inclusive, allowing, open to being present with whatever appears. You know how it is when you want to talk to a good friend about something you're struggling with or some, something you just need to talk out. And so you go to your friend and maybe your friend on this particular day says, oh, yeah, sure, I have, yeah, come on over, we'll, yeah. But this friend on this particular day is is just distracted. they got a lot on their minds, their phone rings, they're talking to their kid, or, you know, there's just other things going on. So even though you t- you tell what is your problem and you share what's going on with you, you don't feel you don't feel all that heard and it's a little frustrating you know that experience you're trying to tell somebody something and they're just not there for it another day you go same friend but this time they're the buddha or the guanyin that you've been longing for they're just completely present with you and you can quite easily Describe and unburden all the different parts of what you're feeling, and you feel understood, you feel accepted, you feel heard, you feel seen, you feel not judged, you feel like, oh, they're really here and they're really being present, and there's this feeling of being loved that comes from that experience. It's a very satisfying feeling. Because when somebody is really listening, What's present? There's a sense of being witnessed, being mirrored, a sense of empathy, of no uh, uh, arguing with you about your experience, real acceptance, real allowing. And in that, that quality of open attention that is present for you, what happens? What happens in you when you have that kind of listening? Anybody? You relax. Relax. You feel loved. You You can let it go. Isn't that interesting? It kind of undoes itself. What else? Respected. Respected. Yeah. Sorry. Worthy. You're worthy of being given that kind of attention. It opens your heart. It, opens your heart. And it makes you know you're not alone. It makes you know you're not alone. You feel a connection. So all the, this, this is a, a very wonderful experience to be fully listened to. We all know this. So I'd like to suggest that in mindfulness practice, this is what we're learning. We're learning how to bring this to ourselves. We're learning how to listen in this very open-hearted way to our own suffering, to our own anguish, to our own struggle. We're learning to do this. And this is one of the capacities that awareness, that mindful awareness has, this capacity to create an atmosphere of openness, patience, warmth, friendliness, tenderness, compassion, kindness, that all of this can begin to be the atmosphere in which we sit. And this brings to us a tremendous sense of uh, clarity. We can let it go. We feel accepted. We feel seen. We feel heard. We feel, this is what I need, this kind of listening, this kind of attention. It returns us to what we feel to be our true selves. In that space, we we feel worthy, is a good word. We feel worthy, we feel seen, we feel heard. So in our mindfulness practice, we're learning to be this person for ourselves, This is what we are learning, not to abandon ourselves or to reject ourselves or to distract ourselves or think we're not important enough or somebody else needs listening to, not me. But we're learning to meet ourselves moment to moment with this kind of open-hearted kindness as well as the clarity of hearing clearly what what is true. Not to exaggerate it, not to... Uh, dismiss it, but to see it as it is. And so what comes from this kind of this this capacity to to bring kindness and clarity to our experience, what grows from this are these qualities. these qualities of wisdom, these quality of compassion, the secret teachings get revealed. In the texts, um, talks about the fruits of meeting ourselves in this in this way, of seeing what is true, of opening our hearts to our our ordinary experience. So, in the, the tr- one of the traditional texts, they they, ca- they talk about it like this. They say, meeting the truth in ourselves is like finding an oasis in the desert, like taking a healing medicine and feeling well again. It is like cool moonlight which soothes and pacifies the restless, tormented mind and body. It is like a flash of lightning in a dark and stormy sky. It is like the warmth of the sun breaking through the clouds. When we see clearly, we are freed from our misperceptions about reality, about who we are, about what is occurring, about what, who others are. And we've come to this real sense of well-being, peace and happiness. So even though it, it doesn't appear so grand, you know, sometimes when we're schlepping through the day, I wanted to just remind all of us that actually something is being developed here which will serve us greatly in our lives. These qualities of clear-seeing, these qualities of, of uh, kindness, compassion, warmth, tenderness... So I think I'll end with something that, um, what shall I end with? I think I'll end with this from Arthur Miller, um, who wrote this piece during World War II in London. He said, I think it is a mistake to ever look for hope outside of oneself. One day the house smells of fresh bread, the next of smoke and blood. One day you faint because the gardener cuts his finger off. The next you are climbing over corpses of children bombed in the subway. What hope can there be if that is so? I tried to die near the end of the war. The same dream occurred each night until I dared not go to sleep. I dreamed I had a child, and I knew it was my life, and it was an idiot, and I ran away. But it always crept onto my lap and clutched at my clothes until I thought, if I could kiss it, whatever in it was my own, perhaps I could then sleep. And I bent to its broken face, and it was horrible, but I kissed it. I think one must finally take one's life into one's arms. So let's sit together for a moment. So thank you for your attention. And we have about 40 minutes for walking before we come back and and do a short sitting for the end of the evening, and we will do some chanting as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.